Well, hello there, and good evening. My name is Randolph J, and you're tuned in to Mondo Rando and the best of what's out there on MidtownRadio.ca. The premise of this show is a simple one. Each week, we'll be hosting intimate and interactive chats with familiar friends and fascinating strangers about their passions. It could be model railroading, pelicans, ultimate fighting, or anything else that gets them excited. Our guests will be sharing their fondness for the various subjects that help shape who they are, and occasionally, they may even share their strategies for dealing with everything else in life. This is a relatively new show, and your feedback is more than welcome. You can find us on Facebook under Mondo Rando, on Instagram at Mondo Rando Radio, and you can email us anytime at Radio at gmail.com. Our very special guest today is science educator, entertainer, and podcaster, Burnaby Q. Orbax, who can be found on Instagram at Orbax and Pepper Do Science. Among other things, Orbax has created a series of stargazing guides through the University of Guelph, and so today we'll be talking about all things space. Learn more at youtube.com slash guelphphysics. Without further ado, here now is my conversation with the great Orbax. All right, so we're the great Orbax. Orbax, thank you so much for taking a few minutes to chat with us today about the stars. Not a problem. It's exciting to be here. Well, I, I'm excited to have you here. For those who aren't aware, uh, the great Orbax is, I would argue, one of the most fascinating people I've ever met. Oh. I mean, and, I've, and, I, and I met Erica M. when I was in high school. <laughs> so I've met some pretty fascinating people. But Orbax is, uh, we'll, we'll get into all the different things Orbax does, perhaps if we have the time. And I don't think we'll have the time to get into everything. But uh, among other things, Orbax is a huge fan of the stars and all things space. And uh, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what got you into that particular aspect of, of, your, of your passion. Of, of what, what, what stimulated that passion in particular? Is it something you've been interested in since you were a child? Or? Well, it's kind of it's funny there. Um, it, it's, so so a, couple, a, couple, a couple of things to lay the groundwork, I suppose. For, for, I assume there, there might be two or three people who have never heard of me. Um, but for those, those, <laughs> for those who are uh, incredibly enwrapped with my, uh, with my entire biography. So my position at the university in the Department of Physics is I'm effectively a science communicator. So what I do is rather than as like a day-to-day lecturer, um, or somebody who supervises grad students and has students, what I do is to help generate a lot of the social media content that we have, um, video content that we reach out to the community with, and just try to get out there and be available to the people as a conduit between our professors in the University of, of Well Physics Department and people out in the street and students and, and young people and things like that. And, and just to get the name of you, Guelph Physics out there as an actual place to go to for physics as an undergraduate degree. Um, so in terms of my history, I went to the University of Guelph myself back in uh, back in the last century. It was 1996. Oh, Things were different then. We had hypercolor back in those days where <laughs> you'd be wearing a green shirt, except where it was sweaty, where it would be purple I remember, instead. I remember the hypercolor. Yeah, yeah and uh, and uh, so so I came to Guelph for physics basically as a, as a young person under the guise that physics was kind of the I was a smart kid. Physics was the hardest thing to do. Um, I was going to be paying for myself to go go through school. I'd always like the sciences, um, but I also liked history. I liked art, and that's where a lot of my other interests since then have gone. Yeah. Um, but but science was always the thing with me. I don't know if it was just growing up watching too many old monster movies and falling in love with the idea of the mad scientist toiling away or what <laughs> it was um, to create a better future through science. But I, I went through for physics because it was the hardest thing. I felt if I was going to be paying my own way through school, then it should be something I can't learn on my own. Um, And physics Mm -hmm. was that for me. So going through, and this is one of the things I tried to stress with our undergraduates. um, It's tough doing an undergraduate degree in some of the harder sciences. I mean, Mm. by harder, I I don't mean harder, although that's true, but you mean more complex, more, more More complex. complex. Yeah. Just, I mean, some of the, the, the basic sciences, mathematics, physics, chemistry, uh, biology, some of these really intensive uh, microbiology, uh, veterinary school, doctors, you know, some of this stuff is really intensive to go through. And it's not this sort of animal house style college experience that some people think of when they think of people going away to school. It was, mm-hmm. you know, we were, I, we were spending five to six days a week, 10 hour days straight without classes, like with, even with classes included, but just studying, working, trying to do assignments and stuff. So I was getting pretty burned out on 
physics and on science when I discovered the lab. I got a, a job placement position in my third year, summer of my third year, going into my fourth year, uh, and then found another great lab in my fourth year. And then I'm like, this is what I like. I Instead of just doing the math, just doing the numbers, which is gorgeous and beautiful, and I love doing that, I could actually make an experiment, create mm-hmm. something from the ground up, see how things change, and, and discovered my love again for science. And this was material science. So we were working on on polymers. It was in something called the, it's called now the Dutcher lab uh, where the company Merexis came from, which is uh, just in the outside of Guelph here uh, 20 years later, where uh, after a discovery in the lab, they found these tiny phytoglycogen particles from sweet corn that has now become an actual consumer product. Um, I was working with them when they were doing thin polymer films. So we were able to look at, at, at physical properties of materials and how they changed over time, you know, spending my time looking through a microscope and studying, coming up with the mathematics as to how something might change and following the, you know, looking at something, observing it, seeing what happened. The scientific method. The scientific method, yeah. Coming up with a way to use mathematics to predict what would happen in the future, right? All these things that I loved, I was like, this is what I want to do. You know, I'm not you know, the, the best student in my class. I was in a really, I, it's funny. You know, it was competitive. Right? I imagine it's very competitive. I was, I was in a very competitive class and everybody was very good, but I was good in the lab more so than I was on paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was able to do that. And I was also able to work with people, um, which was a pretty, it's a pretty rare, not to say it's a pretty rare thing for physicists, but well, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's not a prerequisite, it's not a prerequisite to get into a great physics program to actually be able to deal with other human beings. Yeah, exactly. You, you brought right? that as extra. <laughs> yeah. So I got into super into material science and that was kind of what I did my undergraduate research in. I did my master's in it. I was doing my PhD in it. Um, when I dropped out of my PhD, uh, and I dropped out because uh, as, as you know, I was an entertainer at the same time. Uh, I've been working in a traveling freak show for the last 20 years, which is kind of where my love of the arts has manifested itself, um, as an entertainer. And I was on fire. So I was on, I'd had a fire accident where a third degree burns to 11% of my body, basically my shoulders up completely on fire. Um, and I was kind of like one of these things where I was in the hospital thinking about it. And I was like, well, I'm kind of spinning my wheels here. Am I, do you want to do school or do you want to do shows? Right. Cause if you want to do school, then what are you doing messing around with shows that are almost getting you killed? Mm-hmm. And if you want to do shows, then why are you spinning your wheels doing school? What's what's the passion? Well, what's, what's what the basically what what is that PhD going to do for you as a performer? Well, and this is also one of the things that I started to notice as I was ensconced within academia was this idea that just because someone has a PhD doesn't mean that they're a level of of of, of intelligence or smartness or a goal post for you to strive towards. I had always grown up with this idea of you're a smart kid, you're going to go through school, you're going to get a master's, you're going to get a PhD, and then you're going to do something after that. Mm-hmm. And while I was on that journey, I started to realize that those were just arbitrary goal posts that were placed by myself, I guess. I don't even think that it was really put on me. That was just kind of the the the, the road marks that I saw on the map of how this career was supposed to go. Well, so, yeah, and I imagine that as once you, as for the people I know that have PhDs, once, once you get to that PhD level, your job then becomes maintaining your reputation within that PhD. Sure. You publish, 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 keep yourself relevant and viable within your, within your field. And to get that PhD is a, I don't think people understand the level of commitment it takes to do it. 100%. Yeah. It, it was, I mean, it, like I said, to the point, you know, when I got into graduate school, I was able to to turn the study from the, the, the amount of study that we were doing in our undergraduate stuff, doing my bachelor's, where it was obsessive just to get, you know, to try to get these great grades. When you, you start working on your, your postgraduate work, it's more like a job. So you can start mm-hmm. trying to, to, to hopefully evolve that work-home balance a little bit more. You go into school, you do your studying there, you're doing your research in the lab, and it's, it's a lot more like a job. But, but it is intensive. And in the end, you're the only one who's the expert in whatever it is that you've been studying. Mm-hmm. So it's not like there's a ton of help that you can get. A lot of people are lucky. I was very lucky. I had a great supervisor. I had a great uh, group of peers in my lab who were working on comparable things and could kind of help out um, or, or give me some guidance. But in mm-hmm. the end, fundamentally, you're the one who's studying this stuff and you're the only one who kind of knows anything about it or finds out later that you know nothing about it. Right. And then you, um, then you spend all your time trying to find people who are interested in it, you know, acoustic yeah. people in the subway. Hey, by the way, what was your thesis? What was the thesis? Gonna oh, be? I was working. So I was working on geez, uh, microfluidics and lab on a chip applications. So this idea of using some of the material properties of, of, see, 
certain materials change their physical properties the smaller that they get. Mm. And I don't mean smaller like 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 microscopic like like the like, you know like the size of atoms. I mean smaller like just kind of smaller like like thin films that would be coatings for um electronics or for windows or for glasses and mm-hmm. things like that. And when they get to that size, you can exploit inherent changes in their physical properties, things like melting temperatures that change or mm-hmm. expansion rates that change um, to do things. So the idea, the end goal was the hope would be to do something like you'd have a lab on a chip. So you could take somebody's blood, you could uh, drop a, 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 a small amount of blood into a, a you know, on, onto something basically the size of a microscope slide and then affect small amounts of electricity or whatever to then go through a testing sequence that, you know, maybe it would end up, you would show that this, whatever you're looking for in this person's blood would be in it. Wasn't um, that, isn't that what that Holmes woman, wasn't that the, the con that she was running with putting blood? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. That was that, Elizabeth that, one of those sorts of thing. things. Yeah. yeah. So it was, that was a, an idea for quite a while of, of using this stuff to do it. And then they use it like a, a, a company's, uh, we use it to do things like deposit glue. Um, so if you're doing something like making post-its, you're putting the glue on post-its is, is really tiny, tiny microspheres mm-hmm. that are different orders of magnitude and size. So that's why they stick and restick. When you pull it off the first time, all the huge ones pull away. And then mm-hmm. you stick it again, and the smaller ones pull away. You stick it a third time, and the even smaller ones pull away. And the way you can make that happen is by creating tiny machines that utilize instead of uh, cogs and gear wheels and pistons and, and, and pulleys, they utilize properties of the materials to do the same thing. So in chemistry, I will imagine. Well, I mean, I was doing physics. During I understand. Like, so I understand. There's a bit of a, there's a bit of a, I wouldn't say bad blood, but we'll see. No, no, no. I mean, I think, I think the difference is in terms of, of looking at it from a physics perspective versus looking at it from a chemistry perspective is that from a physics perspective, we're looking at the properties of these materials, what they, they, they are physically doing um, in terms of that idea of machinery. Whereas in chemistry, you're looking at mixing them together to create a similar outcome. Mm-hmm. Just two attempts to do the same type of work. Sure. But um, so this seems like it's 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 light years away. Huh? How about that for a segue <laughs> from looking at space, right? <laughs> no, no, but, you know, necessarily. Ten years later, I, I I was still passionate about science, and I was still an entertainer in Canada. And I mean, anybody who's ever been an entertainer in Canada recognizes that no matter how altruistic you are about making a livelihood as an entertainer in Canada, uh, you're still at the best of times six to ten hours away from your closest next gig. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mm-hmm. touring this country, uh, especially during the winter, is a nightmare. Um, and so I kind of came back to teaching, which led to my sort of science communication job. Mm-hmm. So when I got back into having kind of been out in the outside world for a while and coming back to physics, I mean, to, as a vocation, there's something about space and something about the stars that speaks beyond the idea of the science behind it. Mm-hmm. There's something about that, that every single person, man, woman, child, adult has looked up into the sky and wondered what's happening there. Mm-hmm. Uh, wondered where our place is there. And whether you want to look at it as a philosophical question or you want to look at it as a scientific question, it, 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 I'd be hard pressed to find somebody who's never looked up and wondered why. Well, and it's an impossible thing not to find humility in. Absolutely. And the more you know about it, the vaster it becomes, right? Mm. And now, uh, I've always so I've always been attracted to to the arts, to performance, um, to visual representations of science. I am um, I'm a very visual learner. I like to try to relate my one of my my talents, of which there are three. Uh, one of them is the ability to take concepts and try to translate them to my students or to other people. Um, so teaching, a, teaching, I guess, in a way that makes sense within the context of what they understand in, in terms mm-hmm. of life. Trying to take a physics concept and make it visual or 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 align it with something that just just makes sense because we all understand physics. I mean, things fall down, things light on fire. Uh, we we launch things at angles and they drop. Inherently, we know that we're not going to float mm-hmm. away if we, you know, if we stop mm-hmm. thinking about gravity. We all have this inherent idea of how nature works, and physics is just the mathematical language to try to describe that. Um, so, so when I started looking at space and looking at how it united us as people and how images that were coming out, even the last five, 10 years, the explosion of, of with high definition cameras and internet technology, the explosion of images and 
visuals that we're getting from the farther reaches of space. This whole James Webb Space Telescope that went up last year, two years before that, the, the Daniel K. Inouye uh, uh, Solar Observatory in Hawaii, that's taking goddamn pictures of the surface of the sun. If you'd have told me 30 years ago when I was a kid that in my lifetime, not even in my lifetime, like like when you're when you're when you've got a house later on, you're not even old. It's like, well, I mean, that's up for debate, but but that you'd be looking at pictures on the surface of the sun. Dude, I still don't believe it. Well, to imagine the sun with a surface. That already yeah, yeah, is my yeah, 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 yeah. So again, one of these things you look into space and you're like, oh, it's a flaming ball of gas. And then now we, we have pictures of it. So 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 this and with the amount of stuff that's been coming out rapidly lately, even just dipping your toe into the world of astrophysics and astronomy is huge. So it's always been a thing that I think is a grand unifier. Not only is it, are you, like I mentioned before, hard pressed to find somebody who hasn't at least thought about it, but it's also this great people story. Mm-hmm. It, no, no, one scientist doesn't create an observatory that sees images of the sun. Mm-hmm. Uh, one scientist doesn't create the James Webb Space Telescope. You have hundreds of people from all over the world working together mm-hmm. to try to advance our knowledge of a cause. And I think it's a noble thing to think of all the how these people can work together to try to learn and understand. Well, it's interesting to me, Pete, that the expression has always been scientists that are developing and discovering things now are standing on the shoulders of giants. Mm. However, when you think about when I think about it, I think of people discovering things as one more tiny, tiny link in a very, very long chain. So these aren't giants. These are tiny people who stood on the shoulders of another tiny person Mm -hmm. and another tiny person. And these are human beings. These aren't, these aren't magical Beast. This Newton, is the I thing. Mean, yeah, yeah. Newton, you're Newton may right. be the exception, but nevertheless. <laughs> but I mean, and they're not just. It's another great thing where it's not just physicists. It's engineers. It's mm-hmm. designers. It's chemists. It's planetary geochemists. Mm-hmm. It's it's people who are 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 doing the 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 the. the the, the promotional element of it, people who are, I mean, they've almost got as big of a, uh, well, not as big, but they've got a visual um, develop. Uh, they've got a visual development simulation group that rivals Pixar with what they're able to do in terms of computer graphics and imagery uh, to just get the population. There's, there's a division. They, they released this group, this thing a little while ago, these things called exoplanets. So exoplanets are, uh, Planets external to our solar system that may be able to support life in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they've created this whole holiday uh, uh, ad campaign of, 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 of holiday destination getaways to different planets. So there's videos, there's p- old posters that look like the old, go to the Bahamas, enjoy your wonderful time. And <laughs> it's Club it's, Med it's on like, Neptune, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, not even beyond the solar system, right? So it's, it's pretty great. Uh, but yeah, so... One of the things that I've been doing for the last 15 months um, is has been doing a, a monthly stargazing guide on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Which is great, and, by the way. It's oh, really great. So much. It's, it's been an exercise in learning to edit. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but again, I've been lucky in that you know NASA puts all of its materials out. Uh, under Creative Commons license for educational purposes, mm-hmm. so I've got I've, I've I've learned how to green screen. I've been able to put images up and and try to to not only talk about the night sky but talk about some of the actual physics behind it. But one of the things that I had always bothered me was that you hear about oh there was that uh, lunar eclipse. Did you see that? And be like oh no, when was it? And it was like oh it's last night, and everything would always be you just missed it. Mm-hmm. It always just happened. So my idea was if you put something up monthly, put it at the beginning of the month, and this is what's coming up, not in California and not mm-hmm. in London and not in BC. It's what's happening in Guelph, Cambridge, Kitchener, Waterloo, Niagara Falls, this this area here. What yeah, get, we can get see to the, the, get to the sky. Get to the tallest building you can, and yep. this is what you will see. This on is what this you'll day. see. And what's interesting to me is is when you say that that people just oh what it happened last night these are among the few things in the world that you can predict a million years ahead of <laughs> yeah, time yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you, we knew we knew 30 million years ago that this eclipse was going to happen well, why weren't there's, we there's, yeah. there's even eclipse chasers there's people who go and follow these eclipses cuz you know like depending on where you are on the earth at a given time you might not be able to see it but the earth and the moon and the sun are still in those positions globally mm-hmm. so there's people who go you know who who chart destination getaways to try to see a lunar or a solar eclipse yeah. and things like that 
which they do very far in advance because you can actually predict these things. Yes. So why why we never know, I don't know. But I would the hope was that at least this would give people a chance. The other hope was is that my my focus was on things that um, don't require a ton of money. You don't need a telescope. You barely need binoculars. Mm-hmm. Any family can take a notebook or an iPad or whatever and a blanket. Or your or your or your naked eye or bag. Yeah, that's that's the thing. I like to say unaided eye. I don't <laughs> like the implication of a nude eye. <laughs> okay, uh, but. Uh, <laughs> But you know, you can take that and go sit on a hill with your family or or your your colleagues or just people that you want to be in your world and experience this with. Mm. And it's a way for young people and old people to just be excited about what they see and and start to learn what you see. When you start looking and start seeing like, oh, okay, that's what Mars looks like. That's what Jupiter looks like. That's about where these things should be. You start picking up all this stuff. I mean, I did Boy Scouts. Uh, I grew up on a farm, so we were always looking at the stars and went through Boy Scouts and kind of learned all the, you know, constellations, the basic there, There's the Big Dipper. There's Orion there. There's Orion. There's the Big Dipper. That's the two. <laughs> and if you're lucky, you might get to see the Seven Sisters. Ursa Major. Pla- Pleiades. Yeah. And uh, and Arcturus is always popping up. It's like, I was like, oh, nice. what star is that? It's like, God damn it. It's Arcturus again. It's always Arcturus. <laughs> Arcturus. But uh but yeah, you start looking at these things and you start recognizing where they are, and it just starts making you more interested into where things are beyond that. And, you know, when you think of the cosmic ballet that occurs, how how these I always I don't know why. I think when I was a kid, I saw a making of the great mouse detective uh <laughs> documentary. <laughs> I think and I it saw showed, that. It showed some of the basic, like early use of computer animation, which was basically just to create all the cogs and the gears clipped together inside of there's a big fight in a clock tower at the end oh, of it. with uh, with uh vincent price yes. nice okay as, well, there as radigan yes nice well there we go you're a, l- a little bit much older than i am so it's hard <laughs> for me to have to pull it and be but i didn't realize that was vincent price I, for oh, some yes. reason it always stuck in my head that it was basil rathbone but that well no his, the sense. mouse's name is basil okay wow. and he was named after basil rathbone because basil rathbone of course played sherlock holmes in multiple by the way just a sidebar i don't know if you knew this this year as of now all of the sherlock holmes canon is public domain really That's apparently the, they had, the family had been holding on to a few stories because the, just at a certain point they they realize of course the value of it but i think 90 something years later they were still able to maintain the rights over a, a very select few later sherlock holmes stories and as of uh, the end of, as of you know december 31st at least in the united states is now public domain Wow, well, that's anyway. exciting. So we're just, what you're saying is you and I are getting together and doing a series of radio plays? What, I, what I'm saying is I don't know why we're wasting our time with the stars. We've got real news here to talk yeah, about. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to derail. No, no, no. I was, so I was always fascinated by that idea of, of the gog, the gogs, the cogs and the gear shafts all working together. And I think it, it sort of combined in my, my memory with um, uh, the witch from uh, the the Dark Crystal and her orrery. The orrery is a is a it's a sequence of spheres that are all in different um, rods. I've seen her and they spin it rotates, remember, yeah. you know, with the solar system. And that and that's just that's a thing that exists. Yeah, um, orreries. Uh, they're great to look up. O r r a r y. Gorgeous. It used to be like a big medieval thing where the, you know it was sort of the motion of the planets and the. And the and but the it's basically they, the, they've done a physical representation of yeah. the orbiting of different. Yeah, yeah, and then, you know as as the Earth turns once, where do all these other planets go with it? And right. so for me. Again, I don't know if it was because it was so young or it's just the way my brain works in terms of like when I think of the visual interpretation of how everything moves, I have to think of it as being connected because I don't understand gravity enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but but just this idea that we're spinning and things are moving around us and things are moving even further out around it and that these are all layers upon layers upon layers of how our motion occurs within this big giant universe just moving through space. Mm-hmm. It blows my mind, and and it's it's I don't know it, it's it's a gives me an incredible feeling of happy futility. In some way, it's not a melancholic feeling of of insignificance. It's it's a beautiful feeling of being a small part of a large thing. Well, when you mentioned going onto a hillside with you know your family or whomever you happen to be with and looking up at the stars on a night when the sky is clear enough that you can see some you know you can see Arcturus at the very least if nothing else <laughs> but to know that you're there and there are other people on that hillside who are feeling you feel incredibly grand and incredibly minute at the same time yeah and, yeah and it's, and it's a common shared experience and what's great about astronomy 
is that you can have because you, there's no way to practically test any of it. You have mm-hmm. to just you have to just It's discuss. the only science where there's no laboratory. You discuss and you read and you engage with other people who are passionate about the same things and then you let you let some nerds crunch the math and then you just kind of imagine you're just imagining what's happening. As which a, is math that's also been around for hundreds of years, which mm-hmm. which I, I find fundamentally incredible that, you know, when Kepler's coming up with these planetary laws and forgive me if I miss the uh, miss century this, but say 16th century or 17th century. That's when all the action uh, was going on, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that's been, that's, that's like 500 years ago, dude. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's, it's, it works. We're, just, mm-hmm. we're blowing up uh, asteroids, knocking them off course with the same math. Yeah. It's, it's it wild. is amazing, and uh, yeah, I, it's very humbling. It, I don't know if you saw mm. the the William Shatner. I don't know if you read the William Shatner post that he put up. I don't, I don't know if it's a post or a letter he wrote. No, this he, was after going into space. Well, yes, because in his uh, in his nineties or maybe at the age of ninety, he and one of the billionaires, you know, went for a spin up into orbit and came down. And he said after immediately when it happened, he talked about how wonderful an experience it was and how, you know, of course, it's a phenomenal opportunity for anyone to do, let alone someone in their 90s. But since then, he's put out a post and he explained and he I couldn't I can't do it justice. You have to look at it. I'll send it to you if I can find it. Mm-hmm. It's so eloquent. He talks about how sad he was because his whole life had been about examining going out into space and settling new worlds. He's Captain Kirk for crying out loud. So yeah, yeah. Very much about going off and adventures and and seeing new things, exploring new things. But when he got up there, he looked at the earth and you look anywhere but the earth and there's nothing. And he said, this is it. Every person I know, every person I'll ever know, any person that ever has been is right down there. There's nothing else. And we need to start taking care. We have to stop thinking we're going to get off this planet and you know use resources elsewhere. We've got to start taking care of the one yeah. and only home we have. And it was a really profound uh, letter. I'll send it to you. I'll find it. I'll yeah, that's it. beautiful. I mean, you always hear this idea of uh, of of plan. There's a you know a plan B when we destroy uh, our our planet. We're going to be able to go to Mars and set up colonies and things like that. And it's yeah. like it's like that's a it's a it's it's like jumping from relationship to relationship without going through some kind of therapy or yeah. introspection. It's like you're just going to repeat the same problems that you have over and over. I mean, human history is fraught with that, oh, right? And it's and it's impossible not to think that way when all we can see we can't even see the horizon for all the buildings. So sure. We have no idea how large our own planet is. And when you get up there and you realize the entire planet is tiny and insignificant when you're just a couple of miles up. And how many how many things had to happen for light? To occur here, mm-hmm. right? How many mistakes? How many random occurrences that just all happen to take place, so that now we can complain about our Wi-Fi not connecting quick enough, yeah. or or about uh, or about posts on Facebook? Well, that's it's, it, it's hard to imagine space without philosophy. It's, well, it's yeah. hard. It's hard to think about the cosmos and not there's a reason there's a reason neil degrasse tyson and carl sagan well i was gonna say you say cosmos right there i mean like look at the work of carl sagan and and yeah it it, it was this sort of transcending i mean he was almost it's almost someone who is almost more guru than scientist well i think when you get to be that level of science when you're talking about something as you say there's no lab all of the all the experiments have to happen in your head Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's the transition between physics and metaphysics, right? Is what True. you're basically talking about. It's it's that line of at, at what point are we positing ideas in the hope that the exercise of the thought process brings some enlightenment? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. You know, what do I know? No, but it's very hard not to get philosophical <laughs> when you're talking about space. I know it, it's it's great, and it's the great thing too is that there's no question about space is dumb. You know, I've answered questions as, as you know, I, we I do these outreach for, for <laughs> the answer. The answers may be dumb. <laughs> the yeah. Question, yeah, yeah. When I'm answering them specifically, <laughs> but I mean, there's no, there's no such thing as a dumb question. You know, when when I when I talk to to, to groups of, of of grade school children, uh, or when I talk to to groups high school kids or groups of adults in class, and even simple questions arise, things like, well, you know, like the most basic of what happens to the sun at night, mm-hmm. and it's like, I mean, that's that's you know, it's one thing to say we rotate out of the view of the sun, but it's an entirely different thing to say, Oh yeah, yeah, we know that. 
but really, how does that work? Mm-hmm. And where are we when the sun is 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 gone? And how and, come and, we're not seeing any other light? And why does the sun set look different than the sunrise? And why is, depending on the angle of where we are with rotation to the atmosphere of those sun's rays coming in, why does the sky look a different color? Yeah, and it's, what effect does the sun's absence have biologically? Why are some animals nocturnal and some mm-hmm. are diurnal? How does yeah. the sun affect us when it's not here? So, yes, indeed, what does happen to the sun at night? You are listening to Mondo Rando on MidtownRadio.ca and our very special guest today, the great Orbax of the University of Guelph Physics Department. To learn more about his stargazing guides, visit YouTube.com slash Guelph Physics. And to learn more about the man himself, go to Instagram at Orbax and Pepper Do Science. Now then, back to our conversation with the great Orbax. Well, and it, it's funny. I, I'm a huge fan of uh, Julius Julius Sumner Miller. Oh, me a, too. Uh, for those yeah, who, for so. those of our younger listeners uh, who don't know Julius Sumner Miller, he was, I believe, he was American, but he spent a lot of his university career in Australia, mm-hmm. and then somehow he ended up <laughs> on the hilarious House of Frankenstein, which on was one of the greatest CHH, shows yep. of my childhood. And as I understand it, what ha- the hilarious House of Frankenstein was filmed entirely in Hamilton. Mm-hmm. And its biggest claim to fame, it was it was, a, it was one guy, basically, Billy Van, who played seven or eight different monsters living in this castle. And the biggest claim to fame they had is the producers managed to get Vincent Price to be the narrator. And I guess over three days, he recorded all 150 episodes of this mm-hmm. show. And they would just recycle them, and they packaged them together. And I gather at the time... The CRTC or some governing body said, you can't put this on the air. There's, there's not enough educational value. So the producers said, okay, you want educational value? No problem. So they we'll got Julius Stumner yep. Miller, a physics professor, to come on and give essentially a university level introductory to physics this course. I, I love so much and about him. Is that he never dumbed it down. It was always never dumbed just, it down. this is it's, what's happening. He would say, hello, boys and girls and men and women and people. He would come <laughs> on and say, and then he would say, now, of course, we all understand Bohr's law. And he would just walk through <laughs> this very seemingly complicated, but then his, he basically would do a physical experiment. And as you mentioned mm-hmm. right off the top, I don't know if this was on the recording or not, but we were talking about how when you were learning, you weren't as impassioned by the book learning aspect of, you know, going through your university career. But once you got into the lab and you do the physical, you know, mm-hmm. you watch explosions and you see chemical reactions and physical reactions. And he would do that on the show. And, you know, 30% of the time it wouldn't work. <laughs> Whatever experiment <laughs> he was trying to do. Anyway, sorry. There is, there is, uh, you know, it's, it's funny that it ropes back again to Vincent Price. But two things. One is that um, uh, the producer of uh, Hilarious House of Frankenstein, Mitch Markowitz, he was is the on, Superman. He was the he was also yeah yeah super fly. hippie. Yeah, he's a lovely gentleman, and he's he's regaled us with incredible stories. I won't I won't bore you with them now because they're not mine to tell, and he does a much better job. But he might be somebody to talk to in the future. He's still in Hamilton. He's a great follow on Twitter. Um, but one of the things the original point was that Julius Sumner Miller always uh, stressed that that you're 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 what we're trying to do is we're trying to see we're what we're seeing is is the true beauty in nature, and that to spell nature with a capital N, it is everything it is the universe and our biggest hope as scientists is not to necessarily ever understand nature but it's to see how beautiful it all is mm-hmm. and it's an odd thing as a you know you think as as the, that maybe that's the outlook of a of, of somebody who's a, an agrarian or somebody who's a biologist but it, it's the true outlook. The true understanding of mathematics is the understanding of nature. Mm-hmm. Um, the true understanding of physics is the understanding of of the the beautiful universe that we're in. And nothing nothing's more beautiful than uncovering another layer like an onion of understanding and looking and saying, "There's still stuff I don't know. What's well, that and next to, layer? And and there's know, still stuff I don't know. And what's and that to next? To know layer? that it's limitless. To th- yeah, to the mm-hmm. idea that there is something limitless. If you take two, multiply it by two, that's four. Multiply it by two, you can do that. Inf- it's math. It's a it's a mm-hmm. phil- it's a philosophical construct that is not endable. It, it's it's infinite, and you elaborate, you expand on that. And you look at space, which is in, for all practical intents and purposes limitless. Yeah, and I, and I mean to bring it back to your Shatner thing, you know, like everything in your world is here, and that's such a small, incredibly small and minute part of what physically he was able to see. From the Carmen line, like I mean, they just went up to the upper edge of the atmosphere, right? 
Yeah. Like oh, yeah. That's, that, that's, that's not even that far out, really. Yeah. <laughs> that's not even the moon. I mean, so I don't know. It's, 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 uh, it's exciting to me and it's mind blowing. Yeah. No. And it, and it, and it's an infectious thing. Which is what we're talking about. Cause you, you clearly have a passion for this. I mean, I know you're, you're a passionate that's guy okay. in general. You've got a lot of passions about a lot of things, <laughs> but it is, it is something that, cause I don't sit around all day and I, I don't think about space. It's not, it's not a major driving force in what gets me out of bed every day, but talking to you. Except it physically excited. is. Well, to the, yeah, to the, <laughs> no, all right. I'm a physicist and I'm yeah, yeah. talking to a chemist or whatever, but basically, but it, uh, but you have kind of, you're kind of inspiring me to, you know, it's great. The it's the coolest thing. And- One big thing I can tell to everybody, it's a free app called Skyview. It was a game changer for me. Mm-hmm. Download it on your phone. You hold it up, and, and it, it just shows you the constellations. You hold it up to a star. You point on the star. It tells you what the star is, what part of the constellation is. You hold it up on a planet. You look at stuff. If you pay the two bucks for the advanced version of it. It'll you can your horoscope as well? <laughs> yeah. No, you can look up. <laughs> What it's going to be later, later in the day, uh, next week, whatever, and you so you can look for astronomical phenomenon that's coming up. So if you want to see a full moon, you want to see when Mars is very close to the moon. Uh, do you want to say, well, I'm going up north next week. I wonder what we should be looking for. This is the stuff you can kind of look at, and even to the point where it tracks the ISS, the International Space Station. The first time I've seen the International, well, I saw it once when I was a kid. Um, but we saw, we poked it out last summer over lockdown uh, yeah. because we, we had the app. And, and it's phenomenal. You're looking I at remember, something I, that's full I, of people that we put up in space. That's crazy. I seem see to remember this app. Was, it's been around for a while because I, I seem to remember having it. And you could look down. You don't have to look yeah, yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. don't forget, we, are, we always think of space as up there. No, and we're on <laughs> the ground right. and there's nothing below us. But if you just take that app and use your phone, look straight down. Let's see. All the planets on the other side. We think mm-hmm. of space as a disk, really. You know, when we think of the universe expanding, we think of it always as a disk. That's the image I always have in my head. But which way? The, the disk is a is it's not a disk. It's a, it's a big sphere. Is it? Well, not? this is this becomes the thing. Is is that you know? It's one thing to try to visualize things in two dimensions, and I think we're we're all fairly adept at that through television mm-hmm. uh, and through our screens. We just have this inherent ability to to visualize. Uh, something on a piece of paper, mm-hmm. something right? you can draw on a cocktail napkin. Exactly, but to visualize from three dimensions is is pretty wild, and then to put your your frame of reference on a rotating one and mm-hmm. rotate that around a whole bunch of other different objects and try to still keep it straight is uh, pretty wild. And that's why the sky changes so much as it does, right? Yeah. Is because all these things are sort of rotating around, 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 around each other. And what's a fa- I, I still am fascinated because they they we still call it the firmament. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's nothing firm about it. Everything is hurtling <laughs> at hundreds of thousands of miles an hour. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's but it's in relation, fun. in relation, it looks constant. The constellations they are constant in the same mm-hmm. spot at the, a predictable time, and in relation to each other, we don't see a perceptible change. But everything is moving. Yeah, and I mean, we don't, the only reason we don't see any change is because they're so far away, mm-hmm. um, and and also the reason we don't see a change is that we're looking at stuff from a hundred thousand years ago. Yeah. I mean, light travels at a speed, right? If you're going to see that light, I often use this analogy because I, I had to come up with a bunch of reasons for this when they're talking about the James Webb Space Telescope being a time travel telescope. The um, so it's always this idea. I, I always say this this idea about it. Think of think of light traveling to me as a guy in Thunder Bay with a newspaper, right? Take that guy from the Thunder Bay and you tell him he's got to run a newspaper down to me. And it's like, all right. So he takes the newspaper, he runs it down to me. If you look on, uh, you look up on, on Waze or on Google Maps, I think it takes something on the order of seven days to run from, from Thunder Bay to here. Um, but if he came with that, with that newspaper, the information on that newspaper, even though I'm looking at it the day he arrives on my doorstep, isn't from that day. It's from seven days in the past. I'm mm-hmm. looking at last Saturday's newspaper. This is because the light that we're seeing is information, mm-hmm. right? And it, and it travels with a speed. And if something is a hundred million years away, a hundred million light years away, the light years are a measure of the distance. Mm-hmm. 
it's that far away. It takes a hundred million years for that light to get to us because light only travels at one speed, just like most people in Thunder Bay, except light's very fast and they're very slow. <laughs> but, uh, but it's, a constant if, it's we're, for, we're lucky that it is a constant. Speed. It's a constant. So, so it takes a hundred million years for that information to get to us. Now, when it shows up, it's just that newspaper. We're seeing what happened there that long ago. Mm-hmm. In the meantime of that, those stars could be exploded. They could be gone. They could have moved. Mm-hmm. Um, but we would never know. Mm-hmm. Not for another 100 million years, depending on when it happens. Well, I mean, yeah. light, light from the sun takes eight minutes to get from the sun to the earth. So you figure if the sun ever exploded, it would take us eight minutes before we found out. Well, th- and then we would find out relatively quickly. Yeah, yeah. There wouldn't be much that we could do about it, but uh, <laughs> you'd have just about enough time to say, is it warm in here? And then that's it. You're done. <laughs> well, it's a bright flash. Or conversely, is it darker than it should be? I want to ask you, do you have a particular favorite aspect of space? I mean, it, Ooh, it is such an over, I mean, that's a, a ter- you say there are no bad questions, but there are hard ones. And that's a, that's gotta be a tough question. Yeah. I've been recently pretty fascinated by, um, I've been reading some books. Uh, I, I don't know how shocking this is to, uh, to, to, to the listeners, but, uh, I seem like a person who would read a lot of books. I don't read a lot of books. Um, I kind of, uh, I used, I was a voracious reader throughout high school and my early twenties and university just kind of killed my love of book reading. Oh, really? Um, just, you know, just, uh, you know, reading papers and reviewing things and, and everything else. And then, you know, as the internet kind of came along, I, I recognized that I was reading still, but it was more reading blogs and articles and things like that, but mm-hmm. not really physically seeing that. So I've over the pandemic, I've, I've been able to kind of switch back on into reading books. Um, when I've been reading a lot about the, the space race and the, 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 the early lunar missions, Sputnik, and, you mean, you're talking about the early, the early, oh, yeah, like Sputnik, race. the Apollo program, uh, yeah. the Gemini program following that and uh, or sorry, the Gemini program, then the Apollo program following that. And uh, it's just so neat. Just like right on the foreground of, you know, the 50, because, because people, I, I don't, we were on the moon 50 years ago and we haven't been back since. As um, far as we know. <laughs> true enough. But I mean, that was 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. That's a long time ago in terms of um, it's more than 50 years technology. Ago. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and 50 years before that was the Wright brothers, uh, taking off at Kitty Hawk. So human flight period has not been a, a big part of the chapter of history of humanity, uh, and space flight even less so. And, and reading about, you know, what the spe- going back to the idea of speculation, uh, reading the speculation of what could possibly happen when they were, by the time they got into space, how that would affect people, how that would affect bodies. Uh, do you know, do you need spacesuits? Seeing what the, these two massive countries effectively warring against each other, pushing somebody up, pushing somebody up at what cost, mm-hmm. uh, reading about some of the, the, the Soviet cosmonauts and how they were being pushed through. Well, and, reason- and let's not forget Leica. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Forget the poor dog, know. you know. And, and 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 Ham the chimp, and uh, and every other uh, uh, you know animal astronaut that 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 involuntarily served their country. Yeah, well, don't forget. I mean, I mean, we we talk about that, but I mean, right here on Earth, Max Factor was you know doing his own fair share of maybe not Max. <laughs> <laughs> like animals were, well, that's a topic for another time. I think. Yeah, but uh, it, it's it's exciting. It's so exciting reading about it because it really does seem like old west cowboy stuff, mm-hmm. where they're like, ah, yeah, this is kind of like how a a bullet works, or kind of like how a plane works. So let's just put a guy in it and yeah. shoot him up as far as we can. <laughs> and and <laughs> you know get what? to space eventually. They should be able to get down. Well, the thing that I always really that really makes me smile and makes me happy because you're kind of an old soul as well. I like old things. Mm-hmm. I like looking at, you know, and thinking of the space race that you're talking about and, and yeah, putting Sputnik up, putting the Apollo, uh, the shuttles and all the stuff that goes up. And you realize that the technology that it took to do that, you know, you could find at a radio shack in 1979, basically, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, and you, yeah. nowadays we have our smartphones, we have our, well, your phone has more computing power than any of the uh, the computers the, that were on board any of the Apollo missions. I know, and it's amazing. My microwave. The fact probably. that so we at the University of Guelph we have a um, a professor, uh, Dr. Ralph Gellert, who um, is uh, responsible for the APXS. And what's that? Um, it, it is a effectively it's a detector that can analyze particles and tell you what the composition of those materials are. So we use it on Earth. Um, 
to sort of look at uh, particles in the air and see what what chemical compositions are for it. You can look at it at 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 um, uh, materials. Look at what those compositions are. But that's on the uh, the Curiosity rover really? right now up wow. there analyzing materials. So picking up soil off of off of the surface of Mars and seeing what the chemical components are that make it up using x-rays. Um and and it's it's interesting even this idea of you know he's been to 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 NASA before and and been able to see you know we're communicating with those machines on different worlds mm-hmm. and watching like files download from your internet connection in space. <laughs> As opposed to to whatever, just the amount of technology that goes into it now compared to back then, it it just blows my mind. Well, do you remember, uh, what was it, Um, there was some space body, there was something that was flying around, a man-made object that went up into space, and this was not too long ago, and the batteries had lasted longer than they thought it would, Mm -hmm. and they slowly watched it die. Because You're probably they, talking about the Opportunity rover. I think so. And because so, the sun, it, it had shifted away from the sun somehow, and so they knew that it was now doomed. It, hmm. it, it, it was going to come a time when the sun would no longer... And I, I just remember watching some video of the, the, the scientists on the ground when this was going on, and it was a very traumatic thing. Mm-hmm. Was, they were very heavily invested in this. If, if we're talking about the same thing, I think. Yeah, I, b- I believe so. I, it would be the opportunity rover, and he sent out like a, a last message about how, how beautiful it was on Mars and how the sun was setting and uh, and and whatever. But it, it's, I mean, that is one of the things is that you know you send these things out in in into the great unknown, and so much of it is unknown. But you know, reading some of those those early things and the experience that I've had with with any of the interactions of people who put stuff up into space is that the 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 safeguards and the default. You talk about measuring twice and cutting once. These mm-hmm. people are measuring twenty thousand times and barely and they, making the first cut. Well, they only they get decide to, to make the first cut. They yeah. only have one opportunity to cut, and that's 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 <laughs> the thing. And so you know, when things go right, they tend to go very 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 right. So you tend to see things like okay, these batteries that we had hoped would be five years actually last 10. Um, And we've made the, uh, you know, the solar panels are working better than expected at recharging them. Um, This, that, and the other. Uh, So, so it's, it's always exciting to see that and to see those successes come out of it. Um, But yeah, it's as a result of that, you know, you sort of overshoot your expectations, I think a lot of the times. And so you get very involved with these, with these projects. And you got to think too, something like a rover like that, looking at those scientists who are involved with that, that that's not just that one scientist. It's a community of scientists, all of which this is their life, putting this mm-hmm. thing on this distant planet and trying to learn from it. Right. So yeah, I guess they would be invested <laughs> when, yeah. when you look at it. Well, and, and you think about it, it it's, it's very, you, to you know, connect, connect space to the arts, where but in space and science, where but in science and music, those are the two areas that I can think of that really the people that are passionate about it, nothing matters beyond that. Whether mm-hmm. you, you're working with people, you don't have to speak the same language. You don't have to share anything else in common. You're there. If you're, if the science has got you, you're both working for the same goal music yeah, it's, same it's, sort it's, of it's, deal. It's music science and juggling and nobody and respects juggling. the jugglers right so i mean that just was what it comes <laughs> down to in the end the only three universal languages math music and juggling yeah but yeah. uh well the, 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 <laughs> god doesn't play dice with the universe and i doubt he juggled <laughs> I, I should hope not never the, uh, <laughs> but yeah i know it's, it's it's always exciting stuff uh so so you know, for me, the the excitement of reading about that sort of wild west return, or you know, the first attempts to get to the moon, were, were pretty exciting things. Beyond that, um, I mean, you, you can't help but the the fascination of the James Webb Space Telescope that people have had with it since its inception, as it was being built, and now that it's returning images from space. You're old enough to remember when Hubble went up, yeah, uh, as yeah. as was I. I and was they realized child, that it, and it was a middle aged man. It was facing uh, the wrong way. It was yeah, yeah. So there was there was a small alignment difficulty, but they were able to send people to send astronauts to Hubble to fix that alignment. We can't send people to the James Webb. No, the James Webb is a million, one point six million kilometers the other side of the Earth. 
um, where it sits at something called Lagrange point, which is again, a fascinating thing. It's a, a, the solution to a three body problem in physics where it's just a little spot where out, out way out there because of where the earth is and where the sun is and how heavy they are. That's a place where you can have a stable orbit. So there's gravity is helping keep it there effectively. Yeah. And it's a solution to, you know, a fourth year physics problem. Um, and it works. Yeah. Just for those who don't know, for those who aren't familiar, who is James Webb? So James Webb was one of the early, how how do you say this? He wasn't the founder of NASA, but NASA in its inception went through a whole bunch of different political agencies and initialisms. And so James Webb was one of the people who uh, fought very strongly for it in the, and if I'm I'm wrong, please forgive me. I believe in the pre-Kennedy times. Oh, definitely. Start, starting in pre-Kennedy and going yep. through that that sort of decade of uh, when Kennedy promises that will that the U.S. will land a person on the moon, and within within the decade and nine years later, they actually managed to do it somehow. Right. Um. So he was one of the the people who was most involved, most fervently involved with actively getting funding for NASA, with putting NASA together, and with creating NASA as the entity that we kind of know it for today. Yeah. And he wasn't, um, and he was not just a bureaucrat. I mean, this was a scientist. So the James Webb telescope, tell us exactly what it does. So it's a big telescope. Um, and the, well, okay, it's, that's, it's, that's, that's all you it. need to know. I mean, that's all you need to know. <laughs> so this thing's the size of basically like a basketball court, uh, which was wild because what they did was they folded the whole thing up and put it in top and the top of a rocket. And so they basically send this giant piece of space origami out a million miles or 1.6 million kilometers away from the earth. And it yeah. unfolds. So it's just like, it's like a t-shirt um, cannon, basically. They yeah, put it basically. In yeah. Cannon. And in that is the most expensive uh, <laughs> piece of scientific equipment maybe ever made. So you've probably seen, it's got this characteristic golden honeycomb, uh, aura to the back of it. It's beautiful. Uh, it's beautiful. It's, I think it's 16 pieces or something mm-hmm. like this. And, um, effectively, so it's not a telescope in the way that you think of a Galilean telescope. You got two lenses, you hold it out, you adjust them like you're a pirate on a ship and you can see things in closer contact. This is a, the light coming towards those, that huge honeycomb halo reflects back towards the front, almost like a satellite dish. So yeah. Okay. So a satellite dish sits there and it's got that little receiver that that sticks Mm -hmm. out from, that looks like an arm coming up and bent back towards it. Mm -hmm. Those signals from the satellite just bounce into that receiver. Similarly with this James Webb space telescope, the light bounces from those gold plated reflectors into a a receiver on the very front of it. And what it does is it picks up not just visible light, but near and far infrared light. So, so there's infrared. So there's, we think of the spectrum of electromagnetic waves, visible light's only a very small part of it. Visible light is electromagnetic wave. It's just light. We can see on the other ends of that by violet, you've got ultraviolet and by red, you've got infrared. Infrared has got a longer wavelength. So what does that mean? Well, what it means is when, when any wave comes towards you, it gets scattered by things that are on the order of its size. So things like space dust are in the realm of the size of visible light. As a result, it scatters. Now, what does that mean when it comes to the Hubble? Not much. You just don't get as fine a resolution as you would otherwise. When it comes to the James Webb, it means that it's so far away from us, so there's no interference there, but it picks up this whole other spectrum of, 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 of light, which effectively can kind of just slip past that dust. It's of a longer wavelength such that it doesn't get scattered as easily. And if we go back to our Thunder Bay analogy, all that light is just information. So it's giving us much, much crisper images because we get much, much more information and we're losing less of it to scattering. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like in the old days when you um, used to adjust the, the bunny ears or the antenna yeah, on yeah. your UHF receiver, right? You'd see that image of Bonanza kind of coming in and it would kind of be there. But as you adjusted the, the the sensors, you got more information transmitted to you. And suddenly little Joe's face is bursting out in beautiful Technicolor. Right. Um, right. That's what we're seeing here. So the, uh, the, you, you get a different spectrum of light, which isn't visible light. So you wouldn't see this physically if you were to look at that region of space, but it tells you information about part of that region of space. The other thing that it can do, which is phenomenal, 
is that it can it has spectroscopic equipment on it, which not unlike the APXS on the Martian rover, allows you to decrypt the chemical composition of some of these planets. So we can look at an exoplanet, like I talked about before, plants that we hope um, could support life. And you can get information from those plants to see how much water is in the atmosphere, how much carbon dioxide, how much oxygen. And this is, you know, perhaps one of the unsung heroes of this telescope is that we can kind of now use it to scan the galaxy and the universe to see what chemicals make up these other planets, their atmospheres. And in relative so, terms, how close are they to Earth? Which is really what yeah. we're looking for. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, these things, we're seeing the oldest piece that came out of that was 11 billion years old, I believe. Yeah. It was the, one of the first images, the one they showed to, to, to uh, yeah, the one they were showing off at the White House there. And since then, we've been able to look at things as close as, as Saturn. Yeah. And some of its moons um, to things that are all as full out. I mean, you've seen all of the uh, the pillars of creation and uh, the crab nebula images and just things like that that have come out of this that are they're they're not only mind blowing in the scientific information, but artistically. I mean, like like Boris Vallejo in the seventies had it right when he was painting the uh, space nebulas and uh, stuff. I just haven't seen any Vikings in front of it or seen it on. It looks like something that you would airbrush on the side of a van. It's it's incredible. Well, it's funny uh, you mentioned that because I was going to say that one of the things that I think for me makes this ex especially exciting for the future of science and getting more people interested in space. It's one thing to tell a child or a high school student and show them a, a list of graphs and say, this is what we know about this planet based on these points. And you can see it or read it in a book. It's another thing to see visually mm -hmm. activating stuff yeah. on television, on the internet. And that's the kind of thing that I think really does get people excited. We live in a very visual world. And so when you can see things, like you say, you, you, books are one thing, but when you can actually get into the lab or you can get something physically, you can yeah. see it. It has a great impact on some young people out there, and all of us, really. I, I'm curious, though, you know, like, like when I was seeing images like that in books at the time, everything else was, was, was fantasy. And I'm curious these days with things like, you know, the Marvel movies and, uh, you know, your Oculus has as good of a budget as what NASA is actually getting in terms of, of direct imagery. Yeah. I'd, I'd be interested to hear from young people if it's as visually exciting. They can reach out to me or Pepper Do Science on uh, Instagram or, or follow any of the Guelph physics pages. But I'd be curious, is it as impactful? Because this this Artemis project that just went around the moon for the first time in 50 years got our first solid shot of an Earth rise from the from the dark side of the moon mm. that we've had in like, you know, whatever ever. decades. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the best one ever. And um, I'm curious if that's as impactful to people or if they've they've seen it in video games. Well, it know? swings it around about us. I mean, the plus side is we are getting this great imagery. The downside is the attention span of a human sure. being is in relative terms when you think about how much stimuli we're exposed to every day and how our attention is split a thousand ways. I mean, never mind splitting the atom and causing an explosion, mm -hmm. splitting your attention span and again, splitting it again and again and again. It's, it is difficult to imagine people getting that excited about anything. And yet we yeah. do. And yet people, it do. is, you know, that's, that's a good point. And, the, and you know, the, the other thing too, is that the, the right people will always be excited. If you're, mm -hmm. if you're interested in space, you're always going to be interested in space. And this is only, uh, this is a, this is a heyday, a golden age of, in terms of imagery to me as a science communicator, my my goal and my job is to get people who aren't interested interested, mm -hmm. and if I can show them imagery and 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 tantalizing views that could only be rivaled by our highest end CG, and say this is real, this is what's out there now. Yeah. Um, you know, may, maybe maybe that's it, it's, it's creating a good uh, era for me. I don't know. I've been going on so long. I'm just I'm just rambling at this. Point. No, you're not. No, listen. I think I think you <laughs> you you have found a niche that really serves you well. You're able to use your your great and copious talents as a communicator on stage. You're able to use them for good. You're able to use them Man, for well, science. I'm, you know, in many ways, I'm kind of hoping that the last two or three years that we've seen, um, as difficult as it is, will galvanize a new generation of young people to be excited about science and to see what science can do to help us. Uh, and to improve our lives. And if nothing else, the entire world now has at least one shared common experience.
Yeah. yeah. And the more of those <laughs> exactly we have, that. the better over. Orbax, thank you so much. Uh, we've been talking with the great Orbax, uh, one of my favorite people of all time. Thanks for stepping oh, in the last right. minute. Yeah, no problem. And uh, yeah, if you want to see those stargazing guides, go to the Guelph Physics YouTube page and uh, please like and show people because I want them to get more views. Uh, Orbax, you're the best. Best of Monica. Oh, thank you so much. And that will do it for today's conversation with the great Orbax of the University of Guelph Physics Department. Find his stargazing guides on YouTube slash Guelph Physics and learn more at Instagram.com slash Orbax and Pepper Do Science. And you can find me on Instagram as well. Just look for Mondo Rando Radio and email us anytime, Mondo Rando Radio at gmail.com. That's it for me. Have a great week and make someone happy. Bye bye for now. <laughs>